Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Hi, everyone. I'm Lori LeBay with Alzheimer's Speaks, and I will be your host today. I am thrilled you are joining us. We are going to have a really interesting conversation with two of the world's leaders in dementia. And Michael Ellenbogen, who had symptoms since he was 39 and didn't get diagnosed till 49, and his diagnosis has changed multiple times over the years. And so I'm thrilled to have Michael with us. He is a uh, like I said, a world leader. He's spoken at the World Health Organization and uh, has really pushed to make change here uh, in the world of dementia. And then Tipa Snow, who is a international trainer and who has had such a large impact in terms of how we deal with dementia. Again, this is going to just be a really, really fun and informative show. But before we get into that conversation, I always like to uh, do a couple of shout outs. And one is to the band who does our opening song, which is called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band. I'm so thankful that they gave us that song to use. I just think it's so uplifting. And if you like it, you can go ahead and download that on any of your favorite music platforms. I also want to give a shout out to Picnic Health. They are an Alzheimer's disease research program that you can participate in. And when you sign up, you get $25. What they do is they actually collect and they digitize all of your medical records into one online account. And then you can authorize them to look at anonymized data in your records Uh, that allows them to find information that they wouldn't have found uh, necessarily in a clinical trial. So, you know, it's important for all of us, if we're going to kind of change the world and and our trajectory, to be be able to be part if we're comfortable with that. And you can go and sign up at picnichealth.com forward slash speaks. And you can sign up yourself. You can sign up a loved one uh, that you're caring for with Alzheimer's disease as well, as long as you have legal authority to do that. But again, check out picnichealth.com forward slash speaks and pick up that $25. I also want to mention two support groups that I work with. One is Arthur's Senior Care. Uh, We do something called Arthur's Memory Cafe. And we meet the second and the fourth Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. Central. So that would be two o'clock Eastern, noon Mountain, and 11 a.m. Pacific time. We do that virtually, and you are more than welcome to join us. Also, I facilitate a monthly support group for uh, care partners, and that is sponsored by Brookdale North Oaks and the Shoreview Community Center here in Minnesota. We have been meeting live um, and in person up until last month, and I'm not sure if we're going to meet in person or not this month, 
But um, just to let you know, we meet the last Wednesday of the month at 10 a.m. in the morning central. So if you're in the area, please feel free to, to join us. Um, we'd love to have you. You can just reach out to me at radio at Alzheimer Speaks, and I'll be more than glad to get you information on both of those opportunities. And then this just came into my email box yesterday, and it says there's still time uh, for people to submit to get a $2,500 grant for libraries um, that are either beginning or expanding their services to people with dementia. And if you'd like more information on that, please reach out to me again at uh, radio at Alzheimer Speaks. Last plug I'm going to give, of course, is to Dementia Map. If you are looking for resources, products, and tools, uh, there are many listed on there with more coming um, each and every day. And if you are a service provider or you have a platform that offers anything from uh, support groups, uh, maybe your clinic, maybe your housing, um, maybe you're a caregiver coach. Uh, we have about 150 categories you can search from. Go to DementiaMap.com if you'd like a personal tour. Again, just shoot me an email at radio at AlzheimerSpeaks.com and I would be glad to show you all the site has to offer uh, both families and support groups as well as professionals. So we're going to hear from the footbar walker and then I can't wait to talk with our guest today. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The foot bar walker revolutionized my care of George. It absolutely benefits the patient and the caregiver both, and that's the beauty of it. It's so easy to use. It folds up just like a dream. I got it in and out of the car without any effort at all. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The foot bar walker was designed not only to assist the patient, but also the caregiver. It's like having a portable pull bar everywhere you go. Patients have more control of their motion and pain management, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. Caregivers, put your foot down and quit hurting your own health, no matter which side of the foot bar walker you're on. It's a win-win. Call 731-924-4444 and visit our factory showroom in Paris, Tennessee, or visit us online at thefootbarwalker.com. Well, welcome everyone to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. This is really going to be a special episode because we have two of um, two international experts with us that are just honored and um, and they're filled with so much knowledge. One, Tipa Snow, who is an international trainer who is known around the world for changing lives. I know she personally changed my life with my own mother living with dementia. And then we have Michael Ellen Bogan, who is living with dementia. And so we're going to have two different sides. You know, Michael is an international um, advocate and trainer and connector. And we're going to do a real different format today. I'm going to try really hard to zip my lip so that we can hear from these two because they are just filled with such a valuable information. So, Michael, I'm going to throw it to you first. And... Um, you can tell us how you how you got to know Tipa and and uh, introduce her. Well, thank you so much for having us, Lori. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for doing this. Uh, I, I actually came to Lori with the pitch to do this. Uh, my goal was really to ask the questions that people didn't know about Tipa and for her to ask me the hard questions. So together, I hopefully we'll make some uh, groundbreaking show here today. Uh, 
Let me uh, paint the picture on how I met this wonderful woman. I started advocating for this cause, I guess, over 12 years ago. I was very fortunate as I was invited to attend many venues for free. Sadly, I had the opportunity to hear so many, and most were clueless in what they said. They may have had one or few good points, but they just didn't understand dementia. Then one day, I was in an audience at one forum, and by now, I was used to the same old things that they all said, and something clicked as I was listening. I could not believe it, what I was hearing. My God, is this person really knows what they're talking about. How can that be? How does she know all this? She had me so puzzled that I had to know more about her. I was so excited that I had heard her, and I went home and I told my wife about this lady. I said, I heard this lady, Tipa Snow. She actually gets it. I cannot understand how. I need to understand and talk to her and reach out to her and speak to her. Within, I guess, a year, my wife had the opportunity to meet her. Over the years, we slowly got to know her, and I always tried to get more involved with her. But I was just one of the persons of the, all the millions who were always wanting a piece of her. At that time, she had such a busy schedule and traveling so intensively, and she was pretty much booked out. Believe it or not, I think six months or longer. So I don't even know how she managed to squeeze me in once in a while, to be honest with you. Then I guess a few years later, I met this other, this other wonderful woman, Lady Jackie Pickwitz, at Napa meeting. She was part of an organization at that time called CCAL. And at that time, we were, they were not focused on dementia, but, they, but that was part of their agenda. So we hit it off quickly, and I was asked to serve on that organization. While I don't remember for sure if Tifa was on the committee at that time or was just a regular, but she was well known to them. Because of that, I quickly became friends with Tifa and suddenly moved up on her radar. She and I became so open with each other, and she and I questioned each other, and we learned from each other. She had graciously allowed me to attend many classes, and virtually and in person, and I had an opportunity to play role play with her education team. Since then, Teep and I were even family members of DAA, so that's how we met. I hope I got it right. I don't remember exactly, but that's the best that I could remember. You did a great job, Michael, for a guy who's supposed to have uh, significant issues with recall. I think you did a pretty doggone good job. So, so now let me do the reverse. I think Michael said a lot when he said to Lori, I pitched her something because Michael is this amazing guy in the business world. I mean, he comes from a background of uh, excelling at business opportunities. And he takes an opportunity and turns it into something that's going to happen. So Michael is really skillful at seeing stuff, <clears throat> thinking about it a little bit and going, Ooh, I think I have an idea. And I want to let somebody who has some power to make a decision 
in on this and see if I can bring some people together. So Michael is one of those folks that likes to you, them, let's see if we can't figure out how to do something that might make a difference. And so Michael, my background with Michael is he, he really wants to make a difference in the world of people living with dementia. And so before that, he made a difference in Wall Street companies. I mean, top of the line kind of group is what I know. Now, I didn't know Michael then. I don't know that I, I mean, I might have liked knowing him then, but I might, he might have, show me your teeth, Michael. They might have been different back then. They might have had a little bit of a shark bite to them. And, you know, that's not, <laughs> that's not my pool. <laughs> but since Michael started living with this thing called dementia, what he got really committed to is changing this culture of care, which is where we interface uh, from both sides of it. We, we come together, but not like you need to change. No, you need to change. But instead, you know, how can we come together and try to affect change? Um, because we both believe what is, is not what should be. And the stigma and the resistance to uh, seeing things differently, the idea of neurodegeneration versus dementia and that idea that all all people who have dementia look alike and there's only one main type of dementia and that's what most people have it's like well that's not true um so we've come together a lot over time one of my very first really strong powerful memories of michael is when he shared an essay with me on orange fuzzy drinks because Michael, you have a history of loving. Uh, now, I, I don't know if it's sun-kissed or what. It's orange soda, right? Am I remembering that right? Yes. It's one of your very favorite guilty pleasures. Correct. True. And Michael, in his wisdom, deciding as I move forward in my dementia, he'd heard rumors actually not rumors, he'd heard that as you move forward in this condition, very frequently in the later states, you will have difficulty with swallowing. And that is accurate. People do have a hard time swallowing liquids safely because what will happen is the coordination that's required between something in your mouth, going down your throat, uh, closing your airway off, opening your, um, your esophageal opening so you can get it in your stomach and then slamming that shut and letting you breathe again, it's pretty complicated and your brain runs that. So when it starts failing, people start worrying, particularly with thin liquids. And so one of the recommendations historically has always been for thickening the liquids. And you thicken them with something that um, takes a liquid and turns it sort of into a pudding. Or um, there's an in-between step called nectar, which means it's like honey, but it's not like honey at all. Um, and I'm not sure how well in a human being, I mean, I've tasted it and tried it too. And for me, it leaves a real residue in your mouth and, and it doesn't quench my thirst. After I'm done, what I want to do is drink again because it's like, mm. so Michael wrote this piece of an advanced directive. And so for me, that was like a, Oh, this is someone who really is looking, and this is someone living with dementia who's looking forward and going, okay, so here's what I'm going to tell you. 
don't give it to me. Don't thicken my liquids. If I drink and I aspirate, it goes into my lungs and I aspirate. So be it. I mean, so be it because I want that freedom. I have that right. And I don't want to lose that right to make that choice. And so he made me curious because I I then followed up with, hey, Michael, what if it gives you pneumonia? Do you want them to treat you with antibiotics? How many times? Like if it happens once, do you want to be treated with antibiotics? But if it happens multiple times, what do you want? Tell me that next step. Because it's highly possible with thin liquids, at some point you'll aspirate. So And so that's what started some of our relationships. We've never asked easy questions ever. And, you know, and I'm, I'm supportive of what people say. So Michael said, that's what I want. And I said, so if at the time I, I were to say, well, wonder if he'll take it, if I do it, should I do that? Michael said, I'm going to go ahead and say, hell no. (laughs) Michael said, (laughs) what part of what I told you still stands? Did you not get? It was like, message received. (laughs) So Michael, that's a piece that I strongly remember. So I'm just curious, your take on that now. And I didn't answer that other piece about what about antibiotics? Because I don't remember that part. I just remember the orange soda. And I remember the swallowing issues. And I remember you being adamantly very firm I want what I want, and I don't want people mucking around with that when I can no longer say that's what I want. I want you to honor that. And that was that's a really powerful statement that all too few people think through enough to be able to say with, with assurance, and you tried it. It's not like you didn't taste it and you didn't try it. It's like it's not based on, eh, I don't have a clue what it would actually be like. You did. So talk to me about that. I actually tried it twice because I thought I screwed up the first time because it tasted so bad. So, uh, you know, you're, you're right. Uh, that was, that was a long time ago and, uh, I still have not changed. Uh, in fact, I'm probably even stronger about not wanting that today than ever. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that whole part of doing all that is so complex. It's, it's, it's scary. I mean, you know, my advanced directives now is now 70 some pages. It's like, it's a joke because who in the right mind can do something like that today? I mean, really, how many people with dementia or not even people with dementia, somebody who doesn't even have dementia for that matter. I mean, so laws need to be changed, sadly to say. Yeah. So Michael's, uh, I mean, we've talked about this on a, on a conversation we had, but the idea of how do I want to live until I die? is sort of part of this conversation, which for people living with dementia, choices are eliminated. And so people make really hard choices prematurely sometimes, otherwise they'd be willing to keep going a bit longer, but they get worried um, because people rob them of their choices. And my emphasis is always on, so how do you want to live till you die? And that includes, I mean, so I asked the question, so would you want antibiotics the first time? Uh, just to see if it clears up and you have some more time to go? Or do you not want to be treated with antibiotics after that first aspiration? What do you think? Well, for me, it all depends. Uh, I I think if I'm still living life to the fullest and still enjoying life, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, there's no doubt in my mind. I want to continue to live life as long as I can where I'm enjoying life. 
But once we cross the barrier that I'm no longer living it according to my advanced directives, then I feel at that point, no, I, I don't want the antibiotics. But hey, we all expect it somewhere along the line that we get sick and we have to recover from that. Uh, and, and that's what's scary about this whole bit about making pre-decisions on your life ahead of time. Because, you know, a lot of us tend to put DNRs in place and, hey, I want that DNR to kick in, but we got to be careful when that DNR does kick in because we don't want to go out the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's how we first became sort of more deeply involved with each other. And, you know, and then Michael and I have had, um, you know, sort of events where we tried some things. It doesn't always work out the way we want it to with the outside world, but it doesn't mean we haven't tried hospital efforts to get people uh, identified as living with some brain change. And so deserving some extra support instead of just labeling um, really looking at um, communities and where communities might be thinking friendly, but not really skillfully enough to make a difference. And so really wanting to raise the bar a little bit, um, looking at not leaving people out of conversations because they live with dementia, but instead really hearing what they have to say and figuring out, so what does that mean? Um, okay, well, let's try this. Is this it? I mean, because being curious is where I come in because I really do stay curious. And yet that means I also try to research things. I mean, I'm not just curious. I go and find out some more stuff and then come back with some more ideas about, okay, so I looked at this. I looked at that. How about this? So I'm, I'm into creating opportunities where we can. And I think Michael, when something doesn't work, he'll move on because if it's not working, it's not working. I'm going to jump in and just make a a quick comment. That's one thing that I love about you too, is, you know, there's a lot of people out there that complain that stuff's not working, but they don't do anything about it. And, and you guys, I mean, you, you reach out to the network, like you said, and, and it's not just, research, read a book, see what's been done. I mean, your real life talking to people in the trenches and, and getting a, a true reality check of, you know, am, am what I'm thinking, am I even on target here? Um, I think I am, but you know, you really, you, you dig deep and you dig well, and then you come back and, and say, let's try this. And I think the other thing that for me really resonates with both of you is you have this attitude of let's make change. You know, I'd love it to be perfect, but perfect doesn't really exist. And this disease is more fluid than probably anything in the world. So let, let's just start, see where it goes, and we'll continue to adapt. And, and to me, that is the best of, of all worlds because you're inclusive, you're real, and you know, life ebbs and flows. And, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about life. We're not talking about a product, even though it might be wrapped in a product um, or a training. It, it's something that, um, it, that we're always constantly learning from. And, and not I, a clinical study. I yeah. mean, I mean, I see you guys drawing off your, off your audiences and who you talk from. It's not a one way pitch per se. 
it, it truly is a conversation and, and a collaboration. So for that, um, I, I think that's one of the things that, that differentiates you guys in the industry as a whole and really makes you stand out. So thank you for that. Thank you, Lori. That was great. I got to tell you, I've known Tipa for a very long time, but I don't remember why Tipa got into working with dementia. So can you let us know why you chose this profession? Okay, so it's a complex answer. I mean, it really is. Yes, I had family members, but unlike some people, that is not why I did this. Um, I had I had an opportunity. I worked in head injury and developmental disabilities and stroke rehab. So what ha- what do all of those have in common? Uh, developmental disabilities, head injury, and stroke. What do all three of those have in common right away? Changing brains. And so I then was working on this. Uh, I was teaching at the School of Medicine at UNC Chapel Hill. And because I was doing that work, we were seeing a lot of people outpatient-wise. And we were seeing also we were one of the first teaching nursing homes in North, North Carolina. So we were seeing people in facilities, in community, in family situations. Um, and what we discovered is, wow, there's a lot of brain change going on out there that's not fitting into one of those three categories. Um, who's doing stuff on that? And the answer was, oh, well, that's dementia. You know, and I will tell you that we had a medical leaders at the School of Medicine said, yeah, yeah, that's dementia. Now let's get focused over here on X, Y, or Z, you know, more diabetes or hypertension or something we can do something about. And it's like, but wait, I feel like we could do something about these brain changes because I have this background in these other areas. I want us to try that. And as an OT, an occupational therapist, I, I really work at environment, task, people, and putting it all together to see what can we do, not just what's happening, but what could we do differently so that person can do things the way they want to do them. It's like, what can we modify so they can still do the stuff they want to do? And, and so one of the medical providers said, well, you know, people... Okay, I'm going to say this because this is one of the things that spurred me into this in a big way. Well, you know, people live in people who who are demented. People who are demented are like sheep with scabies. And I was like, excuse me. (laughs) And that was that was his mindset. And he was leading, you know, he was leading some of the work that was happening at the university. Then it was like, and yet he had done research projects on hand function on people living with dementia because it was good for his career. Um, And I saw the difference between true commitment to people who are living with some brain changes. And yet with the right support, people living with brain changes can look very, very different. And so he was like, well, we can't weigh her. She can't get on the scale. And I said, well, give me five minutes and come out and let me see what I can do. And of course, by within five minutes, I had her standing on the scale, you know, able to get weighed, no problem. And he said, well, how did you do that? And I said, I worked with her. I didn't say with her brain that has scabies like a sheep. 
Now, yes, this finger is held right under my chin because I'm being polite, but that sense of, I am appalled, how dare you? But that also spurred me on to help people appreciate that is inaccurate and it's got to stop. That categorization that people who are demented, it's like people aren't demented. They're living with this thing that's changing their brain. I dare you to live with yours. And later on, it turned out some of the, the medical leaders that I worked with ended up with their own dementia. And it was like, I never feel like somebody deserves it, but it was a moment of like, oh, wow. I, cause I met one of those leaders, um, in an adult day health program or adult day program that I happened to visit. And I went, well, Hey, and he looked at me and you could tell there was absolutely no recognition. And it didn't mean I didn't greet him and interact with him and help help in that moment. So he felt comfortable, but boy, it was hard because it was like, wow, how the mighty are fallen. And that whole idea that this is no respecter of anything, this thing called dementia and to put people in categories, that is so wrong. So that's where it, I mean, honestly, you know, there are so many life events that lead lead and led me to this place that I am, which is my job is to translate things differently so people can see possibilities. Um, they won't all take the bait. I mean, that's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but it is what it is. But all I can do is what I can do. And I have a role and I have a piece and that's what I can do. And if I do what I can, we'll move somewhere. I mean, it, and what I hear is it makes a difference for people and for some people. And that's enough for me because that's all I have to go on. I think that's a, a really interesting story. And I think with personalities that are focused on change and who actually believe things can be better, it is those moments that just go, you tell me no, oh, let me show you, <laughs> you know, and and I think there's there's so much out there, not only in healthcare, but society in general of this, well, we've always done it this way and no one questions it. And it just repeats and repeats. And you guys are both powerhouses that go, no, we have to question. We have to change. We have to move forward. And it doesn't mean we won't have disagreements. Yeah. Right? Because we can both come from different places and have different perspectives and go, I respect where you're coming from. And for you, I agree for you. That is absolutely what I will honor and support. And that is absolutely it. But for another human being that I know in my life, they're different. And it's like, well, I'll support them. Now, the problem is when you're in the same space and it's like, so how do we get inclusive and yet how do we keep people well? And I'm into help people being well, if at all possible. And it means well limiting contact because it's just going to irritate people. (laughs) Throwing people together that don't like being around each other because you come from different places, being in the same space for short windows of time. Cool. Being in the same space for long windows of time is a recipe for people coming into conflict. And I don't see the value in that. I mean, it's just setting people up to fail, not succeed. And I don't, I don't support that. (laughs) I think it's a bad idea, frankly. And it means some people will be more alone than others because their preference is not to be messed with a lot. And so we've got to figure out the, you know, how we support that boundary and how we structure a boundary. So it's, I guess the word I would use in science is semi-permeable. You can go through it a little bit, but you don't just get to pretend like it's not there. 
the way some people knock on a door and walk through it. I mean, that's not getting permission. That's just breaking the boundary without permission. So knocking and waiting and, and me going, hey, Michael, and Michael going, hey, Michael. Michael? I think she wants you to respond, Michael. Oh, I thought you, I'm sorry. I thought you were just showing what you would expect. Yes. Well, see, but I couldn't move forward till I found out for sure. Is Michael open to my conversation right now or is he somewhere else? And until I figure that out, I don't know whether Michael is really present with me or something else. And sometimes it's really helpful to have a third party because Lori could do it. Whereas if I did it, if I did Michael, 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 I'm talking to you. Oh my God, how friggin' annoying. But by pausing and waiting, I found out, and now we know Michael's open to a conversation. So Michael, there was one other time. So I'm going to ask another question, see how this one swings with you. I remember at some point there was a speedboat. There was a wanting to pilot a speedboat, really wanting to do that again. Now, it was during a phase, if I remember correctly, where you had some impulsivity going on. If I remember right, you were having some impulse control questions because when you made a decision, you wanted to pilot a speedboat again. And I do say again, because you had done it historically. If I remember right now, I'm I'm reconstructing and my memory's a little faulty. Do you have a history of having piloted a speedboat historically? It wasn't a speedboat, but it was a cruiser. A and, cruiser. Okay. Yeah, and you're correct. I, I actually wanted to go back into boating uh, and I was afraid of being able to do it. And we actually bought a boat and I bailed out on the contract because I was terrified when we went out for the test ride and I, I didn't do it. Uh, I, I, after lucky, I was able to get my deposit back, but a year later, my wife was going to become the captain of a boat. And sadly, uh, when she was being trained, believe it or not, we had bought a boat, a used one at that time. And, uh, I was able to step right in. I wasn't able to listen to what the captain said and how to do things, but I was able to step right in and take over and do it. And I was told by the captain that, hey, you can continue driving. You're doing great. So, yes, you do remember correctly. So here's what, I, you know, here's the added piece that I remember. I remember thinking, okay, so this is me thinking, gee, Michael, you know what be a really good preliminary decision before you bought the boat? You know, that was what I think. Before you buy that boat, it would be a really good idea to go out on a boat and see what happens when you try to drive it. That was my thought. But because I am who I am, I went like this and went, Michael will figure it out one way or the other. I mean, Michael's, Michael, I think, is one of those people who has to try it to believe it. And so I opted at that time to not say it because I really did want to say, Michael, you know what? Here's an idea. Borrow a boat and try captaining it to see what happens. But I didn't because you'd already decided I mean, you had decided you were going to purchase the friggin' boat. And it was like, okay, all right. I'm glad you got out of the contract and you didn't lose your shirt in it. No, <laughs> That's but, all I'm glad about. Nope, it did. 
and, and I got to tell you, Tifa, you know, your, your story on how you got into this is amazing because there's so many key leaders out there who are trying to train people. And until people such as yourself can step in, you know, we, we, we have such respect for these high people because they've been at it for so long. But sadly to say, they're not, they're not doing a lot of good for the people who are living with dementia. And that brings me to another thing. It's like, I don't know, do you realize how great you really are at this? To me, there are like three women out there who truly get it and understand dementia. And I think you're at the top of all of them. What makes you so different? Um, I have a weird brain. I myself have a weird brain. I mean, I do. I, I, I mean, my brain has never been traditional to start with. Um, and, you know, I say that my mom, when I was a little kid, it was back in the years in the 1950s, when you would sign your kids up for all kinds of psychological testing, because it was the thing to do. And so I got signed up for a whole bunch of stuff. And it turned out within very few tests, they said, she acts more like a boy than a girl. I mean, back then, that was the result of the testing. She absolutely doesn't have a fear reflex to try things that people that girls classically are more willing, you know, not willing to do that. And she also has a pretty high empathy titer, which is going to make it interesting because, you know, it's that idea of picking up on things emotionally. But I'm also that, like, really risk taker. So I would climb out. You remember the... Uh, there was a thing where they had they had an open floor. So there was an edge. And if you climbed out onto the glass, you were in the middle of like no support. And as a, as a baby, I just went on out, apparently just sat there and was curious about, oh, this is interesting. Whereas babies classically, especially little girl babies, won't do it at all. Boy babies are more likely to test it and then go on out. And I just went on out. It was like, feels like a surface to me. Um, and so, you know, from the very beginning, I'm a little bit weird about risk-taking and being curious and taking data in and exploring it and, and being willing to go, well, how about if we try this and see what happens? I'm definitely a, here's the data. Let's try something because sitting around and doing nothing about something you don't like just doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, so I'll make a mistake and either it'll work or we'll move forward or it won't work. And I'll learn something because when I make a mistake, I still learn. I mean, I'm still learning something that's really important. And over the years, I have found more often than not being willing to get somebody who's had a really horrible brain injury and is quote unquote, still in a coma upright and helping them with my hand start to brush their teeth often allows them to take over and finish brushing their teeth. And people are like, how do you? And it's like, well, I'm plugging into circuitry that is pretty hardwired if they were always a mouth care person. And so I asked, did they used to do mouth care? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They always did their own mouth care. Getting them upright was a critical piece though. So, you know, we had to try some things. You can't do it in the bed. You don't get the same feel of it. So helping experiment on things. Now, those could be quote unquote built into clinical trials. This is my biggest issue. I don't get crap. I live for people's experiences. And so if I were to go back to clinical trials, 
we'd be back at a university. I'd stay in the university. I was in two different university systems. I was in a community college system. I get bored after about seven years of doing a similar thing. And I've got to try some different stuff because my brain craves unique, different, plug it in, what happens, let's go somewhere. Um, That's just part of who I am. And so for me, dementia, if you call it that, or neurodegenerative change or brains that are constantly shifting and altering in all aspects is exciting. I mean, it, I don't want a cookbook. I can't imagine a job more boring and awful than to do orthopedics and you do knees or you do hips or you, you just work in stroke because it's like after a while, yeah, there's lots of adventure there. However, to me, Dementia is the ultimate in testing my brain. It tests my emotions. It tests my flexibility. It's, it's like having grandkids on Sunday, you know, two of them, different ages, and trying to sort all that out and to stay who I want to be and not become who I am tempted to be, which is I said, sit down. I mean, and go into authority mode versus basically saying, hey, Brayton, can you help me for a second? What? <laughs> Well, he's no longer pulling things off the wall, which is what my goal was. Um, But having to really use my brain to support and foster what people are looking for. And that's exciting to me. I'll tell you, this is very interesting because as I hear you speak, I think of myself in many ways. We're similar in in personalities. And, uh, you know, I I, got to tell you, I find it very sad that we don't have more great people like you out there. And we really need it. And I don't know how we end up getting there, but going on to my next topic, I read so many horror stories from so many caregivers who struggle every day not knowing what to do. I'm sure you've heard many of the stories yourself. Do you know why these folks struggle so much to be able to help their loved ones? Sadly, many of them wait till most of it is ready to go over the cliff. And they just don't know. It might be too hard on them. I think part of it is people want what they're familiar with. And when you can't see it, you want it back. I mean, so I think there's an element of grief and loss that enters relationships that blinds people to what's possible because they're so committed to wanting something that they can't have the history of it. They're wanting their person to come back to that place. And what makes it tricky with dementia, and I think it's the trickiest is that there will be glimpses of the human being the way they've always been. I mean, and so you can hear in one statement, it's like he gets it. And then in this moment, what they can't get in there and use is, and now he doesn't. And if he doesn't in this moment, then me asking him to be that other person is going to cause his brain, her brain, to actually dysfunction, not function. So instead, my typical strategy, and I try to help people with this one, is to say, wow, wow. That was not what I expected you to say or something along that line that gives me space. It causes me to pause as a carer and go, wow, I'm surprised and acknowledge that 
That's all you have to do is acknowledge it first to yourself and to the other person. And they might pause as well and go, well, what do you mean? I, this is exactly what I said I was going to do. And it's like, huh, because that's not what I thought. So I'm just saying that you and I are in different places. And that skill, that ability to pull back in that moment and own your own surprise, your own primitive brain reaction, um, because it comes from a place of primitive brain feeling threatened. I mean, it's all driven by this sense of being threatened by something. And it's like, it's brain change. I mean, I can't fix it. You can't fix it. So what's the possibility of us just going, whoa, that was a surprise. Um, Boy, that sounds really risky. Don't tell me what to do. I hear you. You don't want me telling you what to do. I'm I'm not. I'm simply going, wow, I'm worried pause. Because what I, you know, this idea, I think people have a really hard time with boundaries and independence, safety. These two, these two concepts of being independent and being safe, they, they actually come into conflict frequently when in the world of dementia. And, and then we have public safety, we have property safety, and we have safety of selves, both of us. And in relationships, people feel threatened about independence or safety, depending. And trying to help figure that out is one of the most complicated things I think we can do. And, you know, and people go, well, she's behaving like a child. And it's like, and you are treating her like a child. (laughs) And that is resulting in a really bad outcome. Um, Tell me how you did with teenage kids. Oh, man, we had some battles. It's like, this will go well then. Um, let's learn some new skills because I can't imagine this is going to go smoothly. Um, how much does your husband remind you of your son? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I mean, these moments where we have a chance to use our thinking brain before we get into a situation, we're going to use our emotional brains, um, our very ref- reactive brains um, and reflective versus reactive. And I think we, we explore it so little and we expect so much from ourselves, uh, whether we're living with dementia or whether we're not, you know, the reality is sometimes my brain will do what I want. And sometimes, it won't. <laughs> and the best I can do is pull back and go, wow, I do not know what to do right now. And just saying that out loud, I don't know what to do right now. Can be incredibly powerful in a moment to not try to fix something. I don't know what to do. I'm just saying right now, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. It doesn't mean I won't try as we move forward, but I've got to acknowledge right now I'm stuck. And I think the willingness to do that as a human being, to say I'm stuck. Medical providers have hard, they, they want to be those experts. Researchers, have a hard time. No, this is all, this is my lane. This is what I can do until we get that evidence base. And it's like, why are we using gate belts on people living with dementia? Well, because that's, that's what you should do there. There's current practice. And it's like, where does it come from? Here's the, here's the news that, I mean, I'm using it as an example. Um, when I first started practice, we didn't use gate belts. I mean, I'm old. I mean, I'm really old. So when we first started, what we did is we used people's pants in their waistbands and their belts. But what happened was we ripped pants and we gave people wedgies. 
And so what happened is they came up with gait belts as a substitute for helping people sit up in chairs, helping people feel stable while they walk, but they were never tested. This was back in the day where you just started using something as a new device. Oh, wow. Sort of like restraints. We found out that four out of five people in nursing homes were dying due to restraint use. And we went, oh, chemical and physical restraint. We're going to pull back on that. That that might have been a mistake. So now due to those mistakes, people assume that some of what we do is based on science. And it isn't. It's based on common practice and what you learn from your instructor back in medical school or OT school or what somebody told you sometime or your maybe one case scenario. And it gets people thinking they know something when they just simply think something or feel something. And I'm real intuitive, but I also need to stay curious. You know, I've got a question I want to ask both of you because um, I just find this conversation really interesting. I, I know as human beings, we all want to control things. You know, we don't like loss. We like things the way we're projecting them. Um, and I know for me, I found being more fluid and spontaneous were some of the biggest gifts in my journey with my mom um, that I, I never would have experienced if we wouldn't have gotten sidetracked and, and gone some, somewhere else. Do you think, because we live in this world where everything is staged, everything is perfect, even if your world is crashing, oh my God, I got the best family in the world, you know, we're doing this, we're doing that, and everything's in order. Do you think that's made it worse or that we just don't hide the disease? Where before, I mean, years ago, you stayed in the house and they didn't come out. I mean... What, what, uh, Michael, what are your perceptions on that? Well, the approach that I'd like to take is I'd like to think that everything down the line is going to be the worst possible way. And if it's not, I'm ahead of the game. And that's the attitude that I take with all these things. I try to expect the worst of everything. And by expecting the worst, then I can't be disappointed if we end up down that road. But if it's better, then I'm ahead of the game. I'm doing something great. And that's what I believe caregivers need to do. I think caregivers need to prepare of the worst cases of people with dementia. And if they were to think that way ahead of time, and if their life isn't like that, then they're going to think, wow. I'm lucky because I don't have to deal with it in that case. And my God, I got, I got to tell you, I've seen so many caregivers think how bad their situation is. And I don't think they even know what bad is because I told other caregivers that I can't even imagine what they're going through every single day. So it's like me. I'm living with dementia. I'm having some difficulties. But my God, I know some other people who are living with dementia that are so much worse than I am, so much worse. So I'm lucky. So you have to think of it differently. And if your perspectives are differently and your expectations are differently, then it can only be better for you as time goes on because you're thinking it's going to be terrible. And if it ain't terrible, then it's a good day. So you really have this attitude of gratitude. And and I think that 
can be, uh, you know, a make or break situation if we can change people's mindsets on that. Tipa, what are your thoughts? Um, so I'm going to take it a different direction, Lori. So I'm going to say, I think what we now have is people living with dementia can come out of the closet a little bit as long as they behave. As long as they don't step over that line, as long as their abilities still make people comfortable, or maybe just a little, little uncomfortable, but not real bad. Because if it's real bad, then, oh, that poor man. Oh, Glenn Campbell, how sad. Oh, how wonderful that he can sing with Lady Gaga. That's just, that is so amazing how he does that. It's like, it's called preserved brain. A lot of people living with dementia are going to have a rhythm section, the right temporal lobe that's more effective. You can make use of that same thing with people around you because why do you think I use such a rhythm in my voice when I speak? What do y'all think? It helps people pay attention. It helps people break things into small bites of content. It helps me put emphasis where I want to put emphasis. You know, the, the idea that we've moved the line a little bit. So people who are MCI, people who are early in dementia, well, yeah, they know, we'll let them say something. But for people who are late, late in dementia, we still don't want them coming out and going places. It's like, I don't think there's an us and them. <laughs> this is my world of like, it's time. This is like developmental disabilities when, you know, as long as Johnny can look normal and act normal, he may be on the spectrum, but he knows how to behave. It's like, here's the real story, guys. People who have brain differences, neuro, I mean, we, we, we neurodiverse is now the word we're using, whether it's mental health issues or whether it's developmental disability issues or whether it's this thing called dementia issues. I truly believe we have to start opening windows and doors so people can see the wide variation that is normal instead of abnormalizing everything. This is what normal dementia looks like. You know, this is what normal brain change looks like for somebody. They're going to be very sensory driven. So they're going to want to touch things. And they may, if you get within arm's reach, they may touch you. So if you don't want to be touched, there are ways to go about supporting them that don't involve getting within arm's reach. You get in with arm's reach, you start touching them to do some kind of care. You better be prepared. They're going to start touching you and they may not like your touch. So their touch may get pretty strong and powerful because they're trying to tell you, I don't like what you're doing and they lack words. So, you know, there was, there's a study, there was a recent study that said um, facility, a nursing home staff found out that the main reason people living with dementia get aggressive is because you try to hurry up. And it's like, I don't think that's because you have dementia. I think human beings don't like to be hurried. I mean, why put a label on dementia? But if it helps people start to realize, slow down. You can't come in and say, come on, I got to take you to breakfast. And expect somebody who's doing something else in their mind or having trouble processing to go, oh, okay, well, let me get up out of this chair, pull my feet back under me. Let me make sure I don't need to go to the bathroom. Oh, I don't. Okay, let me come with you. I mean, Really? But, you know, that's so for me, it's like what we have is a lot of people who are cracking the door and go, oh, well, they're okay. She's not, but they are. So, you know, there's still a lot of, 
I, I still see a huge amount of stigma and I see it in our legal system, which really sucks. Sorry, but it really does because legally once you're deemed quote unquote incompetent, which is often done by somebody who has a day of training, a day of training or a clerk of courts and a judge who knows I've done training in New York. They don't know anything about dementia, but they're making decisions about people's lives and livelihoods and resources and who's going to be in charge and what the family dynamics are all about. And they know nothing about, they know very little about Alzheimer's. They know nothing about Lewy body. They know nothing about frontal temporal dementias. Um, They know nothing about vascular dementias. It's just really, there's so much that needs to change. And it's not just the medical establishment. And it's not, I mean, the whole Oh, the whole culture needs shifting. Oh. So there you go. You're, you're, you're so right. And, and I got to tell you, that that's part of the problem. You know, this reminds me of Napa, you know, with, <laughs> you know, these folks expect you to be a certain type of individual and a perfect individual in, in the uh, world. But as my brain is slowly being changed, I'm starting to do some very inappropriate things that I say. Oh, Michael, those are one of my least favorite descriptors. Inappropriate. It's like, and I don't, I don't understand them. And, and the problem is in order to still be out there and talk, nobody forgives you for those things. And they don't understand that. And it, and it makes my life so much harder out there because I don't understand. I'll be honest with you. To this day, I still don't understand why the hell they kicked me off of Napa. What did you I know, do? Yeah. It's like, I don't get it. Why can't these people who are dealing with people with dementia expect you to be so perfect when they know you've got brain changes? It's like, I don't get it. It's like, that's got to change. they got to understand. I mean, if somebody's in a wheelchair, that's a problem. Well, I got a brain change problem. So why are you treating me different and you're expecting me to be a perfectionist when you know I have problems? And it's the people who are in power who are creating, to me, the stigma for the people with dementia because they're not understanding to let go some of those things when they see those issues arise. So this is the, I mean, for me, this is the biggest issue. I mean, there, there's this new line in the sand. Well, as long as you can behave, we want you. And then when you can't, you're out. And it's like, wait, that's not an inclusive community. <laughs> I don't know how to break this to you. What you've done is change where the marker is of what you find acceptable. And it's like, who came up with the word acceptable? I mean, we, you know, I'm going to go back. So there was a time in the world where you, women could not breastfeed babies in public spaces. And somebody had to go, "Uh -uh. who are you to say what I can or cannot do in the sustenance of another human being? And it's like, oh, well, well, I don't like it. It's like, got it. I hear you. You don't like something. You don't want to see it. It's like, well, position yourself so you don't have to see me then when you're in the next booth over. Change seats with somebody. Because me not being able to do something that you do because of some of my responsibilities or some of my abilities or some of my inabilities. It's, I mean, when I said it's like developmental disabilities, I mean, back in the day, we institutionalized everybody. I mean, when I was a kid, if you had a child that was born with anomalies, 
cerebral palsy. Uh, uh, you had, oh, they had, uh, let's see, uh, mom got mumps or measles and the child was born with deformities around and there was intellectual problems or there was a Down syndrome or any of the autism. They were shipped off to state facilities in a very short window of time, five years or less. It was like, oh, crap, we don't know what to do with them either. This didn't help. This is worse. And so they sent them back home to the parents. And so some of my early life teenage years were spent with families that were going, you took them for five years and you sent them back. And I've got to tell you, I no longer have, I don't know what to do because you've sent them back. They are not healed and whole. They, they, they're having issues and we don't have programs in place. We did the same thing with mental health. We closed the state psych hospitals, but then we didn't open all the support systems that should have been open for people living with mental health issues. So now we still have people shooting people down, people, you know, getting in big problems. And, you know, it's just this desire to not see, I think Lori nailed it, this desire to not see things that aren't perfect. And it's like, look in the mirror, you can see something's not perfect. I mean, why are we so invested in pointing out each other's flaws when we all have our own, you know, it's, it's just hard sometimes to watch people hurt each other and go, wait, do you, have you never had a bad day? I mean, you've never had a day where you said shit when you shouldn't have. I mean, I, you know, like, come on. I mean, what you're seeing is the explosion of a brain feeling threatened and out of control. So let's pause a second and figure out what just went on here. And say, wow, sounds like you're really, really furious about what just happened. Talk to me about it. And and you've got to pause it so the brain can get back in gear. But if you're just simply going, that's inappropriate. Boom! Let me really, you know, let me really get you out of control. I mean, it's like, ah, like, let's poke somebody where it hurts and see what happens. Well, and sometimes, you know, I, I almost think too, when I hear uh, this happens so often where someone was just this petite little woman or this pastor who never saw, her, and then all of a sudden, whoo, you know, they're, they're making, you know, sexual gestures and they're swearing. And it's like, maybe it's just all pent up from trying to be perfect. And it's coming out now because the filters are gone. I mean, some days that's kind of how I look at it. And it's, I think you and Naomi File, Naomi File also said, you know, like swear a little now, save yourself trouble down the road. Yeah. So that people are aware, you do know those words. I mean, you have you have learned those words. And on occasion, you know, when you're, you know, that's where it's like, guys, we take in a lot of data, what we hold on to and decide not to share. Man, I live authentically, so nobody's gonna be surprised. Yeah, me <laughs> too. <laughs> Me too. And wouldn't it be nice if we were all allowed to to live authentically? But I think, you know, part of the, uh, one, of the one other thing I wanted to ask you guys was, um, because we're kind of talking about fear and trying to be perfect and, and fitting in and categorizing. One of the things that really frustrates me is, and I think we've gotten better, but I think we still have a long ways to go, is that we we focus on fear to fundraise instead of hope. And it's like, why can't we give hope and, and draw people in? I think they'd stay much longer, but there's, you know, it's, it's almost, and Michael, you had said it earlier, a lot of organizations, um, 
have this philosophy of of fear based you know the numbers are overwhelming it's going to get you it's going to and it's like you know everyone's chance is equal in this i'm sorry <laughs> you know and we really we really you know don't know a lot about this disease we pretend we do but there's so much to learn and i always say it's kind of a baby disease but what you know michael what are your thoughts on fear versus hope in terms of of funding and pushing forward and just living life. Well, I, I got to tell you, Lori, I, I have mixed feelings with that because you're right. We shouldn't have to do that. But when it comes to dealing with government and you have to deal with some of these larger institutions, that's the only way you get them to react and do things, which is sad. You know, it, it, it's, it's not that you're the squeaky wheel that works with them. You have to somehow work on their emotions. And, you know, when I wear my hat that I'm dealing with people in government, I have to push those same agendas, exactly what you're saying, and provide that fear and lack of hope. So I, I get it. I, I totally get it. And I wish I didn't have to do that. But I've also found that was the only way I could get these people to listen. Uh, and I'm sure that's probably the reasoning why some of these other people do that. But I will agree when you people when you have people like the. I won't say which organization after was trying to collect money. I don't think they should be reaching out to their constituents, their constituents to say that kind of fear and things like that to collect money that I disagree with. But I do agree that when you're dealing with government institutions and you're trying to make them awareness where they have to provide more funding and uh, to provide funding for NIH, you have to use those tactics. It's sad, but that's the real world. Tipa, your thoughts? Oh, it's why I don't like politics and why I don't get into it, because I'm not into the fear mongering. I just I won't. I'll say so. Here's where we are right now. We do not have enough staff currently to provide support and care for people who need it. Um, so we got a couple of options, but none of them are ones we're using right now. And all I can say is we're going to hit a brick wall here very, very shortly. We're already there in some places. Um, and we don't have an answer. And I don't see anybody even looking for answers. So it's like I need people to take their blindfold off because otherwise you're in for a horrific surprise. And that's not fear. That's a reality check. We're going to see what we found where people hide bodies, where people just won't have places to go, where families are in desperate straits. And I, I don't see the point of driving to the end of the bridge that goes nowhere without having a turnaround ramp or an off ramp. And I, I just am really desperately trying to figure out what are some off ramp possibilities. And I mean, we're we're trying hard to come up with, okay, so we try to really get with people who are living with dementia, get with family members, get with communities and say, here, learn some basic information to try to keep yourself from getting on that same bridge. And we've got to quit this idea of prevention right now. So sorry, there is no way to prevent dementia. As a, as a category, it's like preventing cancer. You, you know, like you can reduce your risk in some areas, but you're not going to prevent something. So to say the word prevent in a lecture, in a title, in anything, I just, I'm not, I'm not going to do it because it's not true. And those things that people do to promote products or promote anything, if it's a lie in the very first line, it's just an attention grabber. 
it's like, I'm not into that. What I believe is being authentic. And it's like, well, we could talk about risk reduction strategies. Um, you know, some of the things your mom said to do, you probably should be doing them. <laughs> what I can tell you, you should sleep decently. If you're having trouble sleeping, let's talk about it and see what we could do. If you're having trouble eating decently, let's figure out why that is. Is it funding? Is it availability, time availability? What is it? doesn't taste good. I mean, we got to figure out what's driving what you do because you do what you do for a reason. So let's, let's look at it. So I'm a little too um, logical to get into politics just because it's like, I don't mind compromising, but when all we do is fight three quarters of the time and fight about stuff, that is not where my energy needs to be. I, I just, that's not my thing. Um, and I'm glad there are people out there that find that that energizes them. That doesn't, that totally depletes me because I'm not much into sticks. I'm into carrots. <laughs> I'm I with totally you. Carrot I totally cake. You. I, I, I hate politics, but sadly to say, in order to do what I'm doing, you have to get into it. And yeah. I, I get it. You know, uh, that's why it's going to take more than one category of us to do this kind of stuff, because that is that is not my avenue. I mean, I'll be happy to be a poster child and do. I can get it. I mean, I'm in the North Carolina legislature. I sat in somebody's lap and said, OK, so now let's talk about my inappropriate behavior. And it's like, what are you doing in my lap? And, well, you were sitting there, you were rolled back and you were messing with your tie. And I thought you wanted me to sit with you. Well, I never said that. Understood. Understood. But you gave visual cues. So let's talk about how you could cue differently. And what could you do that would make a big difference for me and for us and not to have this quote unquote behavior that was a problem? And it's like gesture to the chair. Just Hey, Tipa, stand up, gesture to the chair, see what happens. <laughs> it's, like, it's not rocket science, but there is a science and an art to this. And if you don't know, you can't do. And it's like, quit being blind and deaf and unaware and start paying attention, guys, because it's everywhere. Dementia is not something you're going to put in box and lock. It's like it's present in our lives, just like kids are present in our life, just like, you know, other cultures are present in our life. Get over it and start learning. That's, you know, that's where I come down. It's like time to learn something because people can learn. People living with dementia can learn. Oh, my heavens, do they learn? They learn a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff you wish they didn't learn because you set it up for them to learn that. And then you're surprised that they anticipate that you're going to try to get them out of the chair and they go, no, no. And you go, I don't understand. Why is he being so obnoxious? And it's like, because you were. I got another question for you, Tifa. This one I can't take credit for. This one actually came from somebody from the ALZ uh, message board. What things did you find the most challenging in your career that may have stumped you either professionally are personally related to dementia? Uh, one of the hardest things for me to figure out is when people are in clear distress and they are unable to, to show me, tell me, consistently figure out what is causing that distress so we can try to resolve the distress. Um, so, and one of the things that um, the examples of that is crying out, please, 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 please don't, please don't. And yet there's nothing happening. Um, and, you know, uh, many times I can figure out what's, what's driving that, but those places and spaces where 
the person is clearly in a distressed state and yet their boundaries are so rigid that having someone come into that space to provide anything is so overwhelming. And, and so that situation is so heartbreaking because you know they need distress relief, but trying to figure out how to deliver it, what would give them stress relief, sometimes those are the biggest stumpers. I mean, and it can be really hard. Um, funding for me is funding and availability of resources that are the right resources is also heartbreaking for me. Because if they had the right resources, this person would be able to X, Y, or Z. This family would be able to. But because resources are tied up with funding streams that have nothing to do with dementia, they have to do with other things. And it's like, well, it would be available if he had this condition, but not for dementia. It's like, oh, this is so frustrating. So you can pay for a hospital stay, but you cannot figure out how to pay for somebody to come and bring food and, and fix it so they can eat. So, you know, there's something wrong with these systems. So for me, when we know there are answers and we can't get to the answers either because of money or resources or personnel, or if we have somebody that we truly don't know where the distress is coming from and it's clear they're in distress and the only way we can treat it is to knock them out. That to me is, I mean, that really is, that breaks. That, that's a tough one because it's like putting a Band-Aid on a, on a huge pressure sore and hoping that it's better. And it's like, it's not better. And sometimes I think that's how morphine gets used. Uh, for people living with dementia in the later states, I think that people throw morphine at something when they don't know what to do about it, rather than clearly explore, I mean, is this a bone pain that would respond to a central acting narcotic? Or is this another kind of pain that would be better treated with some kind of other intervention? Um, so, I mean, those are my answers, I guess. Got another one for you. I've had the opportunity the opportunity to know a lot of players in the dementia training field. Many of them created their own certification programs. Not that I understand why they think they should be able to do that. I'm shocked that they do not even include people with dementia. In fact, some of them refuse to include people with dementia in the process. You have always included people like me in the process to learn more. In fact, you had the largest network of people living with dementia playing a key role to educate your team. Why is it that you are the only person out there that realizes the importance of learning from those who actually live with it? Well, because I really, I'm here to serve people living with dementia. I'm, I'm, that's the whole point of what we're doing. I mean, I can go do other things. I mean, I, that this is not the be all and end all, I hope, but I don't know. I may end up doing this the rest of my life because that's what I'm called to do. But, but I believe if I'm not serving the people I'm supposed to be serving, then how dare I do training about serving people that I'm supposed to be serving without having people that I'm supposed to be serving involved in the training. I've had 40 plus years of clinical experience to draw on. I've also had life experiences well before that to draw on. Um, So I have, you know, like 
close to 60 years of experience living with various kinds of dementia around me. So, and other health conditions. So I'm coming into this with a very rich background, but for other people that I may be bringing into this world of providing support and training, they may not have that. So I want them to learn from people who are living with this condition because you've met one person living with dementia, you've met one, but if you've never met anybody, worked with anybody, learned from anybody living with dementia, you're working blind. You are working absolutely blind. Well, my grandma had dementia. How, I mean, so did my, you know, so did mine, but that doesn't mean that that made me somebody who should teach others about dementia without learning more and having people living with dementia in my world, in my life, in my days. And so I have people living with dementia that are just part of my life because I truly believe that's how we become a community. If I'm not willing to have people in aspects of my life that aren't just professional, how dare I? Um, that's not a true community. That's patient doctor. That's client. Um, adver- you know, I, it's just got to be different. I truly believe we are human beings ultimately, and we've got to treat each other as human beings. And if you need to be invited in, good Lord, why not? That's craziness to me. I just don't think it's authentic if we don't have people living with dementia as part of the training experience. I think it's wrong. Well, we're going under total assumptions then, you know, of of what our background is. And it's like, why I always say, you know, why don't we open the door and invite them in instead of peering through the window guessing and, and, you know, making all these judgments. I mean, I, and I'm sure you're, you're the same, but I've learned so much from people in the trenches, both those diagnosed and family members. I mean, there's there's not a better learning field out there um, than reality and, and being able to accept it and, and learn from one another. Um, I, I just, yeah, I think it's silly, you know? Well, like, I think it's, I think it's hopeless. If mm-hmm. we do not take that perspective into consideration, we don't listen to that. We don't learn from that. Then what we're doing is hopeless mm-hmm. because we will never meet the needs of people that we're trying to serve. If we don't, check in and make sure those are the needs they have. That's what they want because, you know, otherwise learning that thicket is good for people late in the, that's a brand name. So thickener is good for people late in dementia who have swallowing issues only if they want it. I'm sorry. It's only good for them. They want it. And if you're not listening to Michael, you don't know that some people don't want it. And it's like, so it makes me take a step back and be more curious and less judgmental because I've got to find out. In other words, every time I interact with a person living with dementia, I've got to find things out before I start moving forward in care or support or anything else. And I think that's maybe why I can't support other certification programs because they don't. I mean, they do not honestly involve people who are at various points in their dementia, various types of dementia. They don't involve them in the learning process. And it's like, well, then I think you might be missing out on some stuff that are important things to know. That's what I think. And I got to tell you, Teak was not afraid to ask the hard questions at those things. Uh, I've been there, so I know. And, and I think that's great because, you know, that, that's the only way you learn. And uh, I, I think it's uh, great. Like I said, I think you're a lot like me in many ways. I get very frustrated when I see people not doing things the right way. My wife laughs at me, but and I have a saying, there are many ways to do things, but there's only one right way. 
Oh, Michael. Oh, Michael. There's only one right way for you. And that I, I live with you. I know I don't, but my husband is very similar to you. So I have to be real thoughtful about, so do you want me to do this or would you rather do it? I'll do it. It's like, got it. Because I will never get it right. And once I've learned that, then I, I'm going to be more effective working with somebody who needs it to be that way. And it's just, it's just what it is. I mean, I don't, you know, who am I to say you're wrong and I'm right. I mean, like, no, I think there are better ways. And I know there are some really crappy ways. So, you know, and see, that's where we are similar, but we're different. But my ability to know that, yeah, you know, it's like, I really think you should knock and wait till somebody answers before you come in the room. Are there exceptions? Absolutely. But do I think people deserve space? Absolutely. Um, And I think respect is what we're talking about here. Can I respect a human being as a human being, regardless of abilities? I mean, can I really find something to respect in every human being I run across? And the answer is, yeah. Sometimes I have to work harder at it. Um, And sometimes I have to know when I need to step away because I can't find it right now. And so I need to take a break because I'm not finding it. And all I know is I don't like anything about the human being right now. And when I'm in that place, that's an acknowledgement of mine. I don't like anything right now. I need to go away until I'm in a better place to interact or I'm going to cause trouble for ourselves. And there's no point in it. So I need to go off by myself. What will happen if I don't have that room? space. Well, that's when things will get ugly for me if I ever do develop dementia. Because trying to keep me in a space when I've said I need to move away, I need to go off by myself for a bit. Well, you're not safe. Yeah, I don't care. (laughs) I need to go off by myself to hear that part. If I fall, I fall. If I fracture, I fracture. I'm really sorry. You can repair it once, then be prepared. I'm not sure you're going to get to repair it twice. Make sure you give me weight bearing right away. I don't care what you have to do to do that. Try it real hard because I'm going to be up and moving right away. Uh, don't plan for a walker. I won't use it. Almost guarantee. I mean, you can put it there for a second and then move it out of the way because I'm I'm very doubtful, you know, sort of thing. So, you know, it's, you know, that's, that's part of it. Well, just so you know, part of my thinking comes from being a six Sigma type person so that, 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 that's where I get my thoughts. But on that same line, is there one or two things that stand out to you that most caregivers still do wrong that gets you frustrated? Oh, oh the laundry list. Um, Michael, Michael, Michael. Um, <clears throat> one is assumptions versus assessments. Uh, the idea that brains can change in that short length of time, they can change substantially. I mean, they can go from able to not able, from not able to able. And the inability to notice that things are changing is one of the biggest challenges because people think they're still talking to the same person they were talking to five minutes ago, even though the eyes are glazing over and the person is looking around. And, and, then, and then their strategy is, Michael, 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 I'm talking to you, Michael. And it's like, pause. What is he looking at? Other stuff. Uh Uh-huh. But I'm not done. Understood. He is. (laughs) So 
what if we pause and we figure out what he seems to be looking? Does he need something, want something? Is he not liking what's happening? Let's get curious because I think it's a lack of curiosity and assumptions. Those are the two things I think get in the, are the biggest barriers to really effective care support. And the carers have a hard time with it. Once they experience something, their brain wants to have it the same way the next time and the next time and the next time, which I think is one of the reasons Lewy body disease is one of the most, oh man, poorly managed dementias in the world because people want to sleep when they want to sleep and they want people to sleep when they should sleep and they want them to, to not do stuff that they shouldn't do and they want them to do stuff that you want them to do, which is pretty much for all dementias, but for Lewy body that fluctuates like a roller coaster, it's called. I mean, it's a really rough one. But even just through the course of a day, she's got sundowning. The chemistry of her brain is usually less, less active and, and effective in the early afternoon and early evening than it was in the morning. You are absolutely right. So is yours. <laughs> what can I tell you? Afternoons are not our highlight. Um, we usually want to change environments, change activities, change tasks, change focus, change role. We want something different in the afternoon, early evening, because we're tired of what we've been doing. Frankly, that's what it's about. So let's be responsive instead of reactive. Well, she talks about going home. Well, what she's saying is she's done being here. Wherever here is, she wants to be elsewhere. So let's figure out the elsewhere. Or she wants somebody different. She's tired of you. Or she wants to do something different. So she needs a new task. I I mean, I don't know exactly what it is, but I do know this. Something's got to (laughs) change. You're not going to fix it with, well, she's sundowning. Drugs are rarely the answer for me in those situations. Drugs are not the answer. The answer. Doesn't mean that might be part of the equation, but it's not the answer. And I think Reaching for pills, the magic pill, the magic thing. There's no magic thing. So, Michael, your afternoons and early evenings, better or worse than your mornings? The afternoon is definitely uh, the worst for me. Uh, you know, and, and I, I think I've told you before, I, I hate the word sundowning. You know, uh, I mean, to me, people just don't get it. It's, it's that, you know, we're, we're running from beginning of the morning till we go to sleep on 110% with our minds because we're trying to focus so hard to understand everything that's going on that that just drains us. And and like I tell people, it's like them trying to do some kind of project that requires the top thinking of their brain and to focus on something because if they were to make a serious mistake, it would be a disaster for them. And that is the only way I can tell them how they can relate to what I'm dealing with, because that takes a lot of brain power to do something like that. And that's what I deal with all day long, just to try to stay focused and understand this conversation that we have right now, because it's so hard for me to stay focused. And, you know, even though I hear all the words, I don't process all the words. So my mind has to try to formulate what I'm missing to try to tie it in all together because I'm not getting it all. And people don't understand how complex that is. Yeah. And so what that means is when we're done here 
and we need to wrap up soon because I can't imagine you got to be running on fumes, Michael. I'll be, I'll be fried. <laughs> You'll be fried. And that is exactly what's going to happen. And so if anybody sort of even asks for what they normally ask for right after this interview, Michael might really have that meltdown moment because he doesn't have anything left to give because he's given above and beyond. But that's what advocacy is about sometimes. You do what you can do in those moments, but then you need a recovery period. And that choice to keep doing that, that's yours. That is nobody else's decide on but yours. You know, do I still want to do it? Do I still care about doing it? Yeah. All right. Well, let's do it. And then let's give yourself some recovery time. And I may cue you in that I'm not sure we're done with a recovery time if you try to come back too soon. Because I think sometimes just, Michael, I'm not sure you're recovered yet. Oh, that'll just, I'm fine. It's like, okay, we can try it again, but I don't want you to not succeed simply because you didn't give yourself enough recovery time. And that's all I think it is. And so that willingness to say that to you is not, I mean, that's not me saying you can do what you want. I'm just saying I'm noticing some things. And that's that decision. How do I say that to you? So it's not viewed as I'm not trying to boss you around. What I'm saying is, wow, you put a lot into this. I think you're going to need more recovery, maybe than classically, because this is a long session. This is longer than you usually do anymore. You're right, Tipa. And to, to give you an example, yesterday I was at a meeting and the first half hour of that meeting, I tried so hard to understand what the meeting was about. I can't tell you one word from that meeting because my, I got into that meeting and my mind was somewhere else and I just could not process any of the information I was hearing. Nothing. No matter how hard I tried. And that's what people need to understand sometimes with people with dementia that as hard as you want to try and hear things, sometimes that's just impossible. It's just not going to absorb. So when we notice it's not absorbing, it's time to go, how about if we reschedule and let's try it another time? And it's not because I don't think you're not interested. It's that I think at this moment in time, your brain isn't cooperating with you. Let's reschedule. And that willingness to do that, I think too many people are like, well, but he's there. It's like, but he isn't. (laughs) So doing a check-in to see how things are going can be sort of, Michael, are we getting somewhere or should we take a break? You know, kind of thing. It's just getting more comfortable checking with your partner about what's happening and realizing it's not a lack of will. It's a lack of gas in the tank. And you can't put more gas when there's no gas. So Lori, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I am thrilled with what we got to do today. Um, Michael, I hope you are. Absolutely. Uh, I, I just want to, I guess, end it with one thing though, Tifa. I got a real concern. Mm-hmm. You are great. You have a gift that is changing the world, but. What happens, God forbid, something was to happen to you? Do you actually know at least one person who could take over for you? We have, I I will say that I have developed a set of five people who have different abilities, but some similar mindset about this, that idea of curiosity and learning from and being truly committed to community. 
I have five people that I have brought on board and am are lifting up. I have people living with dementia that have abilities to move forward. We're working with groups and individuals to try to nourish um, one another because truly there's no ever going to be anybody just like you, like me, like Lori, but there are people that we can bring alongside us that have very similar curious brains that I think will allow us to move forward into the next generation of what this will require because I'm really very aware that we're talking a couple of generations before we get to a place where we have what we want in place. And we won't have it when, we, when we're, we're leaving this world, but we will leave this world different than we found it. And that's, you know, and leave it with some hope for the future, some legacy. And the legacy is who will we leave that will be able to carry on something that leads in a good direction. You're absolutely right. Nobody could ever replace you, no matter how hard anybody you would want to. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be from West Virginia. <laughs> Michael, any last words from you? I just have to say that this has been great. Uh, it, it, you know, be with, with my two favorite women here. And uh, it, it, it's really been really a pleasure to be with both of you, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I mean, Oh, the New Jersey yeah, is coming I, out. I do a whole oh my God. The New Jersey I, just came out. He was so not New Jersey and he just went New Jersey on Yens. I mean, just really close to Yens. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, Lloyd does some great things and it, you know, both the views in your own way have done such amazing things for this dementia arena that I, I, I just think most people don't know or understand because a lot of the things that you folks have done bleeds to other things that other people take on and do. And that's how you folks are making a huge impact out there. And uh, we're slowly changing the arena. And uh, I'm so thankful to have gotten to know both of you folks. Yeah, similarly. Yeah, I think it's, it's by increments. But if we don't, I feel like the little inchworm sometime, but if we don't ever move forward, we'd never go anywhere. And it's like, I'm not paralyzed. I mean, we might as well move. Yeah. Well, it really is a, a ripple effect. And, and one of the things I guess I want to add just wrapping up is I, I think all three of us kind of um, summarize this, but we don't really have a fear of failure. We have a fear of not, not trying. We all seem to have this, uh, kick, kick the curb, you know, the word perfection and focus on progress and, you know, being fluid, being spontaneous and, and thrive on change and the the hope and the possibility of what the world could be like and, and how we can serve and then being grateful for like-minded people and collaborations and, and just the, the willingness to be authentic and, to be heard and to be listened to. I, I mean, I think, I think people like Michael living with dementia and the families, um, all that they've taught us in terms of what are the true needs and to, you know, to, to open that door to really let us know and, and see the privacy of their world and stepping out onto the stage. I mean, that's, that's just such a beautiful, profound thing because it helps so many people. And, and Tipa, your work is just amazing. I, I still remember the day I met you at a conference and I asked why my mom had, was having such a difficult time in the shower. 
and that she was scared of the shower and she always liked, you know, being clean and grooming and she loved water and she was petrified. And you said, you know, get a rain shower, start from her feet. You know, it's the pressure. It's this, and I mean, I, I have told that story, I don't know how many times, but your willingness to share in an, in an authentic and real life way that you can go and apply stuff um, is just so beneficial. So thank you both for your time today. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, Tipa, do you want to go ahead and give your contact information out if people want to sure. check it out? Yeah, www.tipasnow.com, our website. We have a Facebook page. We have, oh, a YouTube account. I have TikTok. We have, you name it, we're there. Because different people learn different ways and people connect in different ways. And we're trying our very best to be available throughout the world, however people might learn. Um, Because this is a big subject and we got to figure it out. Different languages, different ways. So thank you, Lori. you are a gift to the world and dementia map. Yeah, that, that one has got a, we've got to find a central location that is not driven by um, fundraising that has a place where people can come and can learn about what's going on in the world and who resources might be. So I think that piece is really essential. And I think that's important. And Michael's work and all of our work together, I think is what will make a difference. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Michael, and how would you like people to reach out to you? Well, since I no longer have websites, I guess that's kind of hard. Uh, I guess if they, they, they can find me th- uh, through the internet if they want to reach out to me or if they can get through you to get to me. Uh, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Okay. So people can always reach out to me at laurie at alzheimerspeaks.com and I'll, I'll connect. Um, that's part of what I do. So again, thank you so much for all you do in spending this amount of time with us today. This has really, truly been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you, Michael, for the opportunity, (laughs) for the pitch. (laughs) It was no pitch. Thank you. And for our listeners, I, I would just say, you know, like, click and share. There was a lot of meat in here. A lot of learning for all levels of people, for those diagnosed, for family members, for professionals, for researchers, doctors, um, you name it, cities, businesses, there, there's just so many nuggets. And, you know, we're doing all of us a disservice if we don't share it. You know, don't, don't keep knowledge to yourself. It, it's there to be spread. Be part of the ripple. So thank you. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.